So this morning we're going to be beginning a new series as we get closer to the Christmas season. Uh, and as you can see behind me, it's called God's Presence. Um, Ethan, you need to go to the next slide. Yeah, okay, presence, God's presence. Uh, we're not talking about Christmas presence. We're talking about who God is, the attributes of God, um, and to know him. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verse 18, that no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, and he has made him known. So we come to Christmas and Jesus being born, Jesus came to make God known. And so as God's people, we need to know who God is. And so this series is going to be focusing on the three titles of God and what many people know as the Trinity. God the Father, which we'll be looking at this morning, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we're going to unpack these three in the next three weeks leading up to Christmas. And my prayer is that it's going to give us a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation for Christ coming to be born, and that when we come to the Christmas, we can realize what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit did on our behalf. Now, about three years ago, I came across a book written by a gentleman named Rob Phillips. The title of that book was What Every Christian Should Know About the Trinity. And as I was reading that book, I began thinking, you know, this is really something every Christians should know about the Trinity. We should know about the Father, about the Son, about the Holy Spirit. And so I began praying, God, how, how do you want me to use this? How do you want me to teach this? How do you want me to preach it? Because I just felt it was important. And what I do every single year, and I'll be doing it here in about a month, is I take a couple days and I just sit back and I pray for God to give me a roadmap for the upcoming year. And, and sometimes those things change, and I know we're going through an ongoing series of walking through all four of the Gospels, but sometimes we take little breaks and do these tiny little series in between. And as I was doing it this last year, praying for God to give a roadmap, God brought this book by Rob Phillips back to my mind. And so I began to pray, okay, when do you want to use it? And God just centered my mind, even though Christmas had just passed, onto the Christmas season and so I'm going to be pulling from this book. It's not going to be our main source. We're going to be using the scriptures as our main source and understanding God the Father and who God is. But I want to give credit to where credit's due. And so some of the things I've pulled from that book, and I'll make mention when I do quote him, but I don't want you to walk away and say, well, I think I've read that before. So unlike other, other sermons, if you're visiting with us this morning, usually what we do is we focus on one particular passage of scripture. Well, this morning we're not going to be doing that. We're going to be looking at numerous passages of Scripture to gain an understanding of who God is as God and who God is as the Father. And uh, so I, I will mention those passages for those who take notes, or you can just keep your Bible handy and be ready to turn, uh, or you can, whatever, if you're using a tablet, you have your thumbs ready. And so we're going to be focusing the next three weeks about the Trinity, and then on Christmas morning we're going to wrap it all up again to get this deeper appreciation. Uh, just as a word of note, the word Trinity does not exist in the Bible. It comes from a Latin word, trinitus, which means threeness. It is a term used to describe the one and true living God who exists as three distinct but inseparable, co-equal, co-eternal persons. And when we say God is Trinity, we are describing the what of God. When we speak of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, we are referring to the who of God. Three persons, indivisible in substance and nature, but distinct in identity. The word Trinity is a man-made word. So if you try to look in a concordance for that word, you're not going to find it in the Scripture. But it helps us get this understanding of these three inseparable identities of God, which we're going to walk through in the next week. 
So we have to begin first with an understanding of God. And I know a lot of us have an understanding of God, but what Scripture points us to, and we don't, again, have enough time to walk through every name of God given in Scripture, every attribute of God given in Scripture. We could probably make an entire series on those things because the Bible reveals God, and Jesus came to make God known. But we have to get a baseline so we can have a deeper understanding and appreciation when we refer to God as our Father. So if you pick up your Bible for the very first time, you're going to open up to the first book of the Bible, which is, oh, good, we're still awake, Genesis. And so in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 1, God wants us to know something very important about him. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and, and the earth. And so from the very beginning of God's word, we're actually given three things we can know about God from that one verse. And the first thing we can learn is that God is the only true God. Before anything came into existence, there was God. God has always been, and God will always be. And we'll come back to that thought in a moment. Now the name of God here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 is the Hebrew name Elohim, which is significant because in Genesis that is a plural name of God. Not saying that there are multiple gods, but again pointing to what we're going to be walking through the next three weeks and dealing with the Trinity. God is one, but he has multiple attributes. And so throughout Scripture we see this spoken about God time and time again, about God being the one and only true God. For example... In the Shema, which is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And Jesus is going to quote this passage of Scripture in the Gospel of Mark chapter 12 and Matthew 22 when he quotes what is the greatest commandment in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Now Paul would write to the believers in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, that there is one body and one spirit, Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul would also write to Timothy in his first letter, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. When the prophet Jeremiah spoke over the people of Israel, he spoke to remind them that there is only one true God. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10, it says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. When Jesus prayed over his disciples in the Gospel of John on the night he was going to be handed over to be crucified, he prayed in such a way to remind them that there is only one true God. John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, we are told to serve the only living and true God. And we might be thinking, well, I know that. Pastor Mike, I'm aware of that. There is only one God, and we should only serve that one God. But when we look throughout Scripture, we find the one true God constantly having to come to his people to remind them of this very thing because they began to fall into worshiping other things. They began to serve other things. And so if God had to remind his people in the Old Testament and the New Testament of this, then it's something we have to be reminded of in our own life. There is only one true God. 
That means he alone is worthy of our service and worship. And the temptation is going to be that we are going to worship and serve other things, which the Bible defines as idolatry. There's only one true God. To worship anything other than him is a false religion. It is worshiping idols. It is committing idolatry. And again, throughout Scripture, God reminds us as his people, he is the one true God. So he alone is worthy. Another thing Genesis 1.1 lets us know about God is God is the only eternal God. God created all things into being, and he could do so because he alone existed before all things began to be created. There's always been God, again, and there will always be God. In Genesis chapter 21, Abraham came to this understanding after he planted a Tamarisk tree, when he made a treaty with Abimelech, and he says this in Genesis 21:33, as he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. That name, everlasting God, in the Hebrew is El Olam. It means God of everlastingness. The prophet Isaiah was sent to God's people, the Israelites, to remind the people of this truth, of God being the only eternal God. In Isaiah chapter 40, he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is insearchable. That's Isaiah 40, verse 28. The apostle Paul referred to God as the eternal God in Romans chapter 16, verse 26. And in that very letter in the book of Romans, he writes why people don't worship the one true God and the everlasting God and the results of that. We'll get to that in a second as well. Some of us grew up singing his song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. You remember that one? Well, the reality of God being the eternal God, he has all time in his hands. He is the eternal God. What that means is nothing surprises him. Nothing surprises God. There may be things that come along in our life that take us off guard, that surprise us, that make us worry, but it does not surprise God. There is not a thing that has happened There's not a thing that is currently happening, and there's not a thing that is going to happen that is going to take God off guard. He is fully aware of all things and all time and all things that exist. It it is speaking of his sovereignty. He's over all things. It speaks of his authority. This is what makes God omniscient. The word omniscient means he is all-knowing. He knew before time began, and he knows when time is going to end. Final thing we can take from Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is God is the only creator God. When Hezekiah sought the prophet Isaiah's help concerning the Assyrian armies who were coming to invade Jerusalem and annihilate God's people, he went and prayed this prayer, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. That's Isaiah 37, 16. So King Hezekiah understood in this moment that even though he could see the Assyrian army coming, even though he knew their intentions upon God's people, he understood that since God is the creator God, God could sustain them if he wanted to. God would be the one that permits these trials and these tests to come upon God's people because Hezekiah understood all things belong to God. Even this Assyrian army belongs to God. When we look at our world today and we look at the things going on, we have to remember they belong to God. And because he is the creator God, 
He knows their intentions. He knows what they're going to do, but they're still under his authority whether they recognize him or not. Eventually, Israel would fall. But in the midst of it, God would come to his people and continue to remind them through the prophet Isaiah that he was the creator. And therefore, he is in control. And in the midst of this trial and this temptation and this uh, adversity, God came and spoke over his people to remind his people he is a creator. And in the midst of their trials, he has already created a way to redeem his people, to bring them back to him. They had to understand he was in control. And he spoke this over and over to his people, Isaiah 44, 24. I am the Lord, and I have made all things. The reason is it's so important to understand because when we go through trials, when we go through adversity, to reminded that God is the creator, and it is through his sovereignty and his authority that he has permitted these trials and adversities to come into our life. And so it's calling us, as he called his people, to turn our focus back to who he is, not to the things that we can see. When Israel's in the midst of adversity, they forgot this truth. The God is the eternal God, the living God, the only creator God. And what happened is they fell into idolatry. They began worshiping false gods. And so God sent his prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah to them. And Jeremiah spoke these words to him. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens, for he is the one who formed all things. That's Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12 and 16. Again, turning back to Paul's letter in the book of Romans. If you read the opening chapter of Romans, Paul is led by the Spirit to point out the folly of man is that they do not recognize God as creator. And in not reckoning God as creator, they begin to create their own gods and begin worshiping other things. And Paul is led to say that they fall deeper into sin to the point that they can't recognize sin anymore. They can't see it as bad because they do not believe in God the creator and God the eternal. And so we take those words of Paul and we point it to our world today and that's exactly what is happening. When the world does not recognize God as creator, then they fall deeper into sin and they don't even recognize it as sin anymore. They recognize it as something that should be acceptable and that as God's people, we should accept their sin and their way of life. But since we know God as creator, we can't. We can't. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase, heavens and earth, I mean God created all things. And that's important because that means all things belong to God. And so these are some truths we have to understand and build a conviction upon as God's people concerning who God is. These are truths to guide us in our understanding of this world and how we should live in this world and respond to things in this world. Rob Phillips writes that the Bible consistently declares there is only one true and living God, the self-revealed creator, who alone must be loved and worshipped. There's one more thing we need to know about God before we get to Father God. God is the only living God. Again, you look into the Old Testament and you see that God's people continue to forget these things about God. And so they created their own. And they began worshiping them. In Romans, Paul writes that mankind is in danger of doing the exact same thing today. When we forget who God is, 
We'll create our own gods. We'll worship things that we want to worship, and we'll give honor to them. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we have the story that many of us know as David and Goliath. So in the story, David's dad decides he's going to send David to the battlefield to check on his brothers. And as David arrives, he notices that there's this monstrous of a man named Goliath who's standing on one hill calling out to the Israelite army to send out their champion. That they didn't have to have the armies all fight together, just have a champion versus a champion, and whoever wins that battle, that's who wins the the whole battle there. As David shows up, he is appalled about what he has seen because the Israelite army is cowering in their tents. The king is cowering in his tent. And so David begins asking, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What David understood is that this Philistine wasn't just mocking the Israelite army. but In mocking the Israelite army, he was actually mocking God because the Israelites represented God. And David understood that there is a living God, which the Israelite army had, must have forgotten, that was going to fight this battle for them. And so we have to always remember that God is a living God. He is not a false idol. He's not something that we create or we build. He is a living God. He lives throughout all time, and so is Jesus Christ. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We see this again in Daniel chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 6, King Darius decides to make a law because of his counselors saying that no one can bow down or pray to or worship anyone except the king. Now Daniel, who King Darius loved very much, heard this decree and he goes up to his room and he prays. And so Darius' counselors go and tell King Darius, hey, Daniel's disobeying the law you just created. The penalty was to be thrown into the lion's den. Well, King Darius was torn all up about it couldn't sleep all night. And once morning came, he ran out to the lion's den to see if Daniel had, in fact, survived. And what he discovered is Daniel's God, the living God, had made the lions into a bunch of little kittens. And so King Darius makes this decree. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. So these characteristics of God, we have to understand so we can have a deeper appreciation for God the Father. God is sovereign. God is eternal. God is living. He is the creator God. He has superiority over all things. And so now we come to God the Father, which should give us a deeper appreciation. Because God is the only one true, eternal creator and living God Yet throughout scriptures, Old Testament to New, he reveals himself to his people consistently as Father. It's not just a New Testament idea. What Jesus did is he came to make God known. He gave clarity to God being the Father. But all the divine aspects of who God are hold forever. And so when we add God the Father, we see all these divine aspects we've just looked at. But now that he is our Father, it lets us know that all these divine aspects, even though that is who he is, God's desire as Father is to draw us into an intimate and personal relationship with him as his children. 
He does not want to be a distant God. And he never wanted to be a distant God from his people, Old Testament or New. He's wanted his people to understand throughout all time, he wants to be an intimate, personal Father God. He is God the Father of Israel. He refers to Israel, the Jewish people, as my firstborn son. That's Exodus 4.22. At the time of that statement, what it was saying is that it was implying that Israel would have a very unique relationship with the eternal God, the creator God. And when Moses revealed the law and the restrictions to the people of Israel, he did so by reminding them, you are the sons of the Lord your God. When Moses began to give his farewell address, setting up the leadership of Joshua to take over, he reminded his people that God was their father. It is God who created them, it is God who made them, and it is God who is going to uphold them. That's Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6. When King David was told he was not going to be allowed to build the temple, but they were bringing offerings in so his son, who would become King Solomon, could build it. He, did, he called upon the name of the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. When the prophet Isaiah prayed for mercy for God's people, he prayed, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. That's Isaiah 64, verse 8. There's several implications when we say God the Father... He's also God the creator, but he's also God the sustainer. He alone is the one that sustains his people. He sustains us. It's not our paychecks. It is God because he is the one who provides for it. When the prophet Malachi spoke the burdens of God over God's people, he did so by reminding them, have we not all one father? Has not God created us? It's Malachi 2.10 probably understand this next aspect of God being the Father, and we're going to unpack it more next week, that God is the Father of Jesus. Again, turning to Philip, he writes, Jesus is the eternal Son of God who becomes the God-man in the incarnation. As divine yet completely human, he fulfills the law, honoring the Father as God. Now, it doesn't negate the equality of Jesus to God, but it speaks of the intimacy that Jesus has with the Father, which here's the good news. It's the same intimacy we as God's children get to have with him now because we call him Father. Final thing is the Father. He, God is the Father of Christians. Might be some here today who believe that God is the only God. He is the eternal God. He is the creator God. He is the living God. But here's the truth. If you have yet to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life, you cannot call God your Father. Which means you also can't pray to Him. You're cut off from Him. That's how Jesus begins teaching His disciples. Our Father in heaven. You may cry out to Him, but you don't have that intimate relationship with Him. It is the salvation of an individual, of a believer, which leads to God the Father adopting that individual into his eternal family, giving that individual the Holy Spirit, and that is what gives an individual access to God the Father. The Apostle Paul loved that word adoption when he talked about our new relationship with God the Father. In Romans chapter 8, verse 13 through 15, he writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, he wrote, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then you are an heir through God. To the Ephesians, he wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now the term adoption, I know some of us have a familiarity with the term adoption today, but adoption in the Roman world held completely different terms and completely different definitions. Robert Utley writes concerning the Roman adoption, which was the world to which Paul is writing and using this world, this word, that a Roman father had a legal right to disinherit or even kill natural children, but not an adopted child. And this is why Paul was led to use this word, because it reflects our security in Christ. When it comes to being able to refer to God as father, it comes to understanding that God willingly sacrificed his one and only son who bore his perfect nature so we might be adopted into God's family and become his children. And so God's adoption of us, our salvation, is to remind us of our eternal security in God, that nothing now can separate us from his love, separate us from his presence, and nothing can remove the spirit that is inside of us. What this implies is now, though, as God is our father, now he has adopted us as his children, God the creator, God the eternal, God the living God, who had an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ came to this earth. Now we have that relationship, which has the implication we have to model it. We have to follow Jesus' example of his relationship with God the Father, which means we are to be obedient to God. We are to be serving God alone. It also means if you're a child of God and in this room, we're all brothers and sisters, which is kind of weird when I think that my wife is my sister in Christ, but that's a different conversation. Michael Bauman writes, as adopted children of God, we claim membership in a family much more extensive, much more important, and much more enduring than the human family from which we spring. To confess belief in God the Father, Therefore, to affirm belief in an ultimately benevolent universe, to confess belief in God the Father, is to affirm that you are no mere cog in the mindless machine, but you are a child in your Father's home. So when we say we have faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone, we're saying, you know what, now I get to have an intimate, personal relationship with the God of all things. I can talk to him, and I can hear from him. I now have a relationship with the God who created the heavens and the earth. And he knows me intimately. He knows you intimately. And he wants us to continue to know him intimately. The creator God is our father. And he's unlike any other human father. I know sometimes there are fathers that cause a lot of pain. There are fathers that let us down. God the Father never will. He never will. He is a father of love. 
and he loves us completely. If we read on in Genesis, we see that God created man in his image. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What that tells us is that God is the father of all humanity. The thing is, there are people that don't recognize it or realize it. That they are created in the image of God, but that image is tarnished by sin. But God still wants to adopt them. He still wants to claim them as his own. He still wants them to know him as their father as well. This is why we preach the gospel. So that people might be adopted into the eternal family of God. Just as we see here in Genesis 1, God created every individual in this room, every individual know, to be in a relationship with him, to know him as their heavenly father. The issue is the sin problem. For all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that sin separates every individual from that relationship. And we can't do enough good things to remove the sin problem. That's why Jesus Christ came, the God-man, to live a perfect life according to God's standards, his holiness, his glory, so he could die and take our punishment on a cross. Christmas is really about celebrating Jesus Christ was born to die for us. And when we accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and God's wrath being fully poured upon him, and we accept him as our Lord and Savior, we'll find forgiveness for our sins, past, present, and future, and we'll be given eternal life. And if you're here this morning and you've yet to make that confession of faith, but you believe that to be true, then God is calling you to his family. He's wanting to adopt you. So we come this time of invitation. I'm going to ask you to come down if you need to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, for the forgiveness of your sins, for eternal life. I promise you there will not be another brother or sister of Christ in here who will be taken back. They will be excited for you. But as God's people, we have to know these things about God because as the Bible reveals over and over again, when we forget them, we begin to slip away into other things. And we don't honor God as the one true God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Father, we, we, we could spend years just diving into who you are and still only scratch the surface. But we thank you, you've given us your word that we might know you. We thank you that you sent your son to make your, you known. And Father, don't let us just have all this head knowledge, but Lord, let it impact the way we worship you, the way we serve you, the way we're obedient to you, the way we submit to you as God our Father. And thank you that you're a good father. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness and your faithfulness to us, even when we are unfaithful children. Father, there's someone here this morning that needs to begin a relationship with you, needs to be adopted as your child. I pray your spirit reveals that to them, and they come and make that known this morning. Lord, let us as, our, as your people, as your children, continue to recognize who you are and continue to praise you because this incredible relationship we get to have with you now. Forgive us if we failed you in any way, and we praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.